Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. It's estimated that almost 30 million Americans will experience an eating disorder in their lifetime. And those disorders can sometimes cause people to develop a negative self-image, feelings of shame or guilt for eating patterns, and even anxiety and depression. While millions live with disordered eating, many misconceptions persist about the condition and the people who suffer from it. Now, in a few minutes, we'll hear from a registered dietitian and psychotherapist and one of her patients. First, as we mark National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, we'll check in with Jennifer Wilds, an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience at UChicago Medicine. Jennifer starts with why it's so important to talk openly about eating disorders. There's a misconception, both among healthcare professionals and the general public, that eating disorders are this very uncommon mental health condition when, Mm -hmm. in fact, they affect roughly about 10% of Americans at some point in their lifetime. And so, you know, I think it's important for people who are suffering from eating disorders to be aware that they're not alone and for, you know, people, whether they're loved ones, whether they're healthcare professionals, to be aware that they may need to ask questions about this. Yeah, Um, say more about that. What, What is it that you want people to know about these conditions? Well, they're, I mean, they're extremely impairing. They can cause serious medical problems. Uh, they interfere with like people's you know, ability to function socially and work in school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also want people to know that they are treatable and they're actually the most treatable the earlier you catch them. So, you know, we're going to have a much better chance of getting someone 100% recovered if we get them, you know, within a year, two years, three years of onset, as opposed to, you know, if someone's been suffering for, you know, 10 plus years. And we'll dig more into that. Tell us the most common types of eating disorders that we hear about most common types. First of all, I think the most common is probably not meeting criteria for what we would uh, diagnose as an eating disorder, but rather having sort of disordered eating behaviors. And so okay. I say the most common behaviors are, are binge eating. Um, that's where people um, feel a sense of loss of control over eating. And that may be a large amount or it may be a, a small amount of food. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you also see people uh, you know, doing calorie counting, people doing things where they're trying to compensate for eating, whether by making themselves sick or over-exercise. Mm-hmm. I think the diagnoses people are most familiar with are anorexia nervosa, yeah. bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. But there are lots of people who don't fit into those buckets and still have important, significant eating disorders. What do the symptoms look like for each of these? Yeah. Like, how would I pinpoint this in my sister or cousin or friend? Anorexia nervosa is the one people are most familiar with. This is where people, you know, are not eating enough and they're losing a lot of weight and become underweight. So they look very, very, very thin. Um, Now, you know, there's a newer diagnosis and it the term is somewhat controversial because it's not really atypical. It's actually more common called atypical anorexia nervosa where people are doing the same thing. Like they're not eating enough. They're losing a lot of weight, but they actually aren't underweight. Mm. People you know, with both of these illnesses are also very, very afraid of gaining weight or becoming fat. Um, and they make a lot of comments. They may view themselves as being much bigger than they actually are. But they might, in fact, not be underweight. Right, exactly. They're starving essentially, whether or not they're underweight. Uh, And so you might not recognize this with the naked eye. Exactly. Just looking at 
that your loved one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what you might notice in a loved one would be, you know, that they're sort of cutting out foods that they used to eat, skipping meals or throwing food away. They can be hard to catch at first. Yeah. So you've used terms like skipping meals, they're starving. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what is happening psychologically and physically in the body when someone is restricting what they eat. You have a couple of things happen. So uh, psychologically, people tend to become often can become depressed or irritable. I mean, think about the sort of notion of being hangry. Um, people are restricting their intake. Yeah. They are hungry. That's a real thing. Um, yep. That people can become very like focused on food and eating. Um, so, you know, sort of obsessively looking at pictures of food, cooking for other people, but not cooking for themselves. There actually was a very interesting uh, experiment done back in the, the 1950s uh, called the Minnesota Starvation Study, where they took male conscientious objectors and they restricted their intake and they began to exhibit these same symptoms. And these were people who don't have eating disorders. Physically, uh, you can see people may develop heart problems, some slowed heart. They uh, may be cold all the time. They may, at the worst instances, actually develop sort of a fine hair on their body mm, um, okay. to keep them warm. Um, they may be sort of jittery or agitated. And you can see, again, all of these things in, in people who are starving. And in your practice, I mean, what, what do you know so far about the source of this? Like, why do people develop eating disorders to begin with? What are some of the reasons you've heard? Oh, yeah. That's a sort of a billion dollar question, yeah. really. And of course, it's, it's very complicated, right? So one of the things we know about eating disorders is that they're highly heritable. Um, so they, they run in families. Um, so there's a strong genetic component to them. Interesting. Um, there's also, you know, the environmental components. So, you know, certainly there are sociocultural pressures in terms of pressures for thinness, pressures to look a certain way um, that can play in. Um, the key thing to keep in mind about that is, of course, we're all exposed to those pressures, but we don't all develop eating disorders. So there's has to be some sort of a, an interaction, basically, between sort of a biological predisposition and environmental causes. Um, you know, I think at the other end of the spectrum, when you're talking about sort of binge eating, we live in this environment that has, you know, all of this we call highly palatable foods, yeah. you know, foods with high in sugar and, and fat. And and, um, and so that can increase people's risk for binge eating. Um, it can also get people stuck in cycles where they're going back and forth between sort of binge eating and then trying to control their weight, mm. either by restricting or uh, doing other things. I want to go back to something you mentioned a, a few moments ago. I think that we grow up learning that behaviors like calorie counting and, and weighing yourself every day, that that's positive or normal. How can we address the inherent bias that we've learned when we talk about what's a healthy weight? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's really challenging. Um, I, I think part of it is remembering that weight is really a proxy for other things. So, you know, it's it's less about your weight and more about, you know, what is, how is your heart functioning? Like, how are your, um, you know, various lab values looking and that, that, I think the other thing that's very important to keep in mind is that, you know, when we think about sort of healthy weight and we base it on on body mass index or BMI, mm -hmm. you know, this is, A, is just an estimation um, and B, it was normed on white men initially. So, you know, for lots of groups, uh, a healthy weight may not be that range that we think of, the BMI of 18.5 to 24.9. Um, it may be higher. Um, in some groups, it may even be a little bit lower. Mm. Uh, are there people more at risk of developing an eating disorder than others? 
I mean, being female is still the sort of one of the biggest risk factors. Um, although that does not mean that I mean men can and do develop all types of eating disorders. Okay. I think they actually often are less likely to get treatment because both they and uh, providers don't think that they do. But and that's the current case mm -hmm. when it comes to men. Yes, but you know, certainly be, being female is a, is a, a big risk factor. Um, having a family history. Um, is a risk factor. Yeah. Um, people who are in the LGBTQ uh, plus community are at higher risk. Really? But not all people get diagnosed. No. Is that right? I would say actually only a fraction of people get diagnosed. So what are, what are the risks then that, that arise when someone isn't diagnosed? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you're not diagnosed, you're not going to get treatment, yeah. right? And although certainly there are people who will just sort of get better with time, um, there, are, uh, you know, for for other people, you know, the longer they go without treatment, the more severe the symptoms become. So, can you recover without an official diagnosis? Yeah. I mean, people do like, and I think that's true for all mental health conditions, right? Sometimes people just spontaneously recover or um, they're able to do that on their own. It's just, of course, we have no way of knowing who would be able to do that and who wouldn't. Yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, my childhood growing up in the 80s and, and 90s. And I recall back then, I can remember being in school and, and learning about, you know, anorexia nervosa, bulimia. Um, and I remember having a very specific visual back then of who gets this and thinking I would be fine because this is a, a thin white girl thing, right? I saw it on television, on sitcoms I watched. It was just all around. Uh, but it is important to note, like you said earlier, anyone can develop eating disorders, right? I mean, you even said a moment ago, people in the LGBTQ community are at higher risk. I mean, why would that be? You know, that's a, actually a really good question. I think a number of different reasons, and of course the LGBTQ plus community is, is broad, um, but so for example, imagine um, if you are transgender or non-binary, you may feel uncomfortable in your skin, um, uncomfortable you know, with the body that you're, you're in, and so people may engage in eating disorder behaviors in an effort to change that. People have talked about, particularly in gay men, that they have, um, there are a lot of pressures for sort of fitness and thinness in that community. Um, that can increase people's risk for eating disorders. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things, and, and you're absolutely right, the you know, stereotype you're talking about is actually called the swag stereotype. Oh, yeah. Skinny, white, affluent girls. Especially, <laughs> like I said, back in the 90s, yeah, yeah. It, that was it. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, maybe I'm safe. But of course I could have been prone to it, right? Just because I was black doesn't mean anything. Well, no, and actually now, you know, we have much better data and there's absolutely no evidence that... Um, you know, white people are more likely mm -hmm. than um, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people uh, to develop eating disorders. And in some studies, we actually find that some non-white groups are at higher risk um, than white individuals. Jennifer, sometimes people who suffer from eating disorders, they can feel hesitant about receiving treatment um, or just asking for help to begin with. How does the condition make it difficult to start that recovery journey? Yeah, I, you know, I think that... Many people with eating disorders are ambivalent um, initially about getting treatment, particularly if there has been some positive feedback for some of the symptoms. So, you know, people will often talk about like if they 
lose weight through dietary restriction or exercise that they'll get a lot of compliments. And there's a lot of fear that, you know, they'll, they'll regain weight or, um, you know, for some people with binge eating, there may be um, a part of it that's, that's pleasurable or rewarding mm. or, um, you know, it's a way of coping with other things. And so people are afraid to give up those sorts of benefits, even if they can also recognize that there are some costs. Yeah. So what does treatment look like? There's sort of a whole care continuum. At this point, you know, there's pretty much consensus in the field that you want to treat people in the quote unquote least restrictive setting possible. So it used to be, you know, treatment was very much sort of inpatient, residential, and now, you know, we really do try to start at the outpatient level. And so, you know, outpatient treatments uh, for eating disorders in children and adolescents, um, particularly with more restrictive eating disorders, the treatment with the strongest evidence base is something called family-based therapy or FBT. Okay, um, describe that. Basically, uh, where the therapist is really working as a coach to the family in support supporting um, caregivers in essentially restoring nutrition um, in, a, in a starving child. And so it, it's sort of it's in its ideal um, presentation, it would be uh, essentially recreating what you might have gotten in a really great inpatient program, but at home, mm. um, so that kids are not taken out of um, their sort of natural living environment. And, and you know, the idea being that nobody is more invested in the child's recovery than their caregivers. Than the caregivers. And before we even get to that mm -hmm. step, I mean, how can family and friends be supportive here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the best way to be supportive is to to note what you're observing, you know, so, you know, you don't want to like, obviously we're not going to blame people or, or get mad at people, but, it, you know, really saying like, I'm concerned. I've noticed that, you know, you've stopped eating your favorite foods or, you know, I've noticed that I hear you in the bathroom a lot, or I've noticed that, you know, you're spending a lot of time, you know, exercising, even though it looks like, you know, you're, you're, you're injured. Um, but, you know, really kind of expressing concern and care and, and really, focusing on what you're objectively noticing. Yeah, um, that sounds like a smart approach. Yeah. I've noticed that. Right, yeah. And, you know, don't be surprised if a loved one may not initially be receptive. Right. Um, you know, and of course, one of the advantages that parents have is, you know, parents can kind of say, well, you are going to get treatment. Um, whereas it's a lot trickier if you're uh, working, you know, with somebody who is an adult where, you know, they really do, they have a right to have an eating disorder, mm -hmm. you know? What role is society at large playing here, you think, Jennifer? I mean, and I'm thinking of things like diet culture, this obsession with slash promotion of use of Ozempic right now as a, a, as a weight loss drug, beauty standards that haven't really evolved over time. There is no doubt that those sorts of pressures when they interact with vulnerable individuals are are contributing. Actually, one of the things that we talk about, um, particularly with more of our, our adult patients that we see is that, unfortunately, for better or for worse, a certain level of body dissatisfaction is pretty normative. Um, and so even people who don't have eating disorders, sadly, um, you know, ha often have a, a bit of body dissatisfaction. And, um, you know, the difference is whether or not it really interferes with your life. Um, but, you know, it's a, there's no doubt and, you know, now with the social media and the filters and, you know, fitspiration and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, you know, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have that. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, one of the things that's interesting, particularly about 
anorexia nervosa is there has been something that looks like anorexia nervosa around basically for all of recorded history. It just had different functions. Maybe it didn't have a name, right? Yeah, So, but when we look back and we see, for example, there were nuns during the medieval times who would starve themselves to death for like aesthetic reasons. And it looks very similar to anorexia nervosa just without the shape and weight explanation. I see. Um, so does society contribute to what we see today? Absolutely. If we got rid of that, I don't know that unfortunately we would get rid of all eating disorders. Are we learning things about eating disorders now that we just didn't understand before? And on the flip side, what more do you think we still need to know? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, of course, been an explosion in research on sort of the neurobiological uh, underpinnings of eating disorders in the last 20, 25 years. Um, so we've learned a lot more about sort of how eating disorders can sort of impact brain function, decision making. Uh, we've learned, going back to what we talked about earlier, I think we've learned an enormous amount about who is actually impacted by eating disorders and about, you know, risk factors that we had not realized. I think one of the big ones in the last five years is a recognition that food insecurity is uh, as a major risk factor for, yes. for eating disorders. And that would have been sort of unthinkable back in the 80s and 90s when, you know, we had that, that sort of stereotype. Living in food deserts. Right, exactly. I think one of the places where we definitely need more research, more advances is in our treatments. So even in our treatments that have the best evidence, so FBT, um, something called cognitive behavior therapy that we use in adults, um, higher levels of care, less than 50% of people respond to those treatments. And that's sort of true throughout mental health. And so we know that we need better treatments, um, you know, different ways and different ways of delivering treatments so that we can reach more people. Before I let you go, Jennifer, uh, share with us some of the best resources you think are out there for recovery. I think the National Eating Disorders Association, or NIDA, has a number of really excellent resources and, and can help people sort of get connected to treatment. Um, likewise, the Academy for Eating Disorders also on their website has a lot of resources. I think those are probably the, the best places to start if you're looking for information. Jennifer Wilds is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience at UChicago Medicine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now we'll hear from a Chicago care provider who's working with patients with a weight neutral and health at every size approach. Kate Merkel is a registered dietitian and psychotherapist who's the founder of Nourishment Works and from Debbie Haywood, one of Kate's clients. Kate starts the conversation by explaining how long she and Debbie have been working together. Gosh. I think like five years. Yeah, I think Gosh. so. Yeah. Five years. How did you come across Kate's work, Debbie? I actually was looking for help and did the online research and got lucky enough to be connected to the right person at the right time. What was your breaking point, you think, that led to you even searching for care like this? Um, I think it was just, I was fed up with going to bed unhappy, getting up unhappy and having it all revolve around what I was choosing to eat and how I felt like I looked. It was just, I wasn't willing to spend the last half of my life being miserable about it. I spent a lot of time being miserable and it was just enough. Had you been opening up about it with anyone else? I think anyone who listens to me, I kind of tell them what's happening. Yeah, but I mean, Kate and I've worked together and, you know, it's just, I think there's a certain amount of shame involved too that might have 
um, had to, I had to learn to overcome to be able to work with Kate in my full capacity mm-hmm. to realize that what I was feeling, what I was doing, and all these thoughts were not, they were shame-based, but all for the wrong reasons. Kate, what brought you into this space as a profession? Oh, um, I have my own recovery. And I, too, also was uh, fortunate enough to meet um, a health at every size, non-diet dietitian um, back in college. And um, she and I worked weekly for many years on me unpacking my relationship with food. I was someone that did not know I had an eating disorder for many years. It did not look like the textbook cases, and this would have been back in the mid to late 90s. So now, as you heard from Jennifer, we have a lot more understanding, a lot more knowledge about the spectrum of disordered eating and eating disorders. And so I went into my doctor and said, I find myself struggling with food, not being able to stop. Mm -hmm. Um, And she literally wrote me a script, go see our dietitian, she's great. And, uh, And I was also at that point studying to be a dietitian. Um, what a yeah. coincidence. Yeah, I think a lot a lot of my, um, as Jennifer mentioned, um, I had uh, I was just obsessed with food. And so it, it actually led me to study food. And then as I, uh, again, feel very fortunate for this, but as I worked with my dietitian through my own recovery process, I had that aha moment and her and I discussed it. I was like, wow, I could do what you do. This is incredible. I'm not learning any of this in school. I had no idea that there's such a thing as a relationship with food and mine was out of whack. Mm -hmm. One of her first questions for me was, how often do you find yourself thinking about food? And my response kind of woke me up. I I remember kind of sighing and being like, oh my God, all the time. How did you know? You know, Mm. And, uh, and that woke me up to like, oh, this isn't quote, normal. This isn't, uh, I don't just need a rigid, strict diet plan because I'm undisciplined. This is something totally different. Yeah. Now, fast forward, you focus on a weight neutral approach. Explain how uh, treatment compares when you're working with clients with or without this type of approach. Yeah. So I definitely could speak for days on this topic, it is a passion of mine um, because I received this care okay. and it was wonderful. So I would look at it as what's missing. Um, so for instance, my dietitian never weighed me in in all of my time. And so my approach is, unless it's medically necessary, so I typically, in the role of dietitian, I consult with the therapist on the team, um, the psychiatrist sometimes, the medical doctor, and unless it's medically necessary, um, I'm probably not going to weigh in the individual or have that discussion with the client of like, have you been weighed in? What does that look like for you? What comes up for you around weigh-ins? Because that can be uh, pretty tumultuous um, for the client to go through. And, And it's one snapshot of really the work that needs to be done is, is a weigh-in. But so that's just one example. But I think it's really meeting the client where they are, mm-hmm. understanding and listening for me, it's a job of listening. What are they, what are they really wanting out of um, their life, out of recovery? What are their values? Mm-hmm. Versus me looking at someone, sizing them up, let's say, and um, putting them on a heart healthy diet or put, putting them on some sort of diet plan. I really 
don't do that very much. I yeah. really want to, I don't live in their body. So I usually talk with folks of like, this is really hard for me to prescribe to you what to eat because I actually need to learn. What do you like? What do you not like? Do you have any food intolerances? So it's very uh, client centered and um, Interesting. it's about getting to know them and what are they working, wanting to get more stamina so they can run around with their grandkids? Um, are they, you know, what are their goals yeah. versus, yeah. What were your goals, Debbie? Um, Take think, me to your sessions with, with Kate, well, if you will. Well, I think my goal and my goals still are just to be uh, a happy person. And I think the time and effort that I spent thinking about food, thinking about my body size and shape made me unhappy pretty constantly. And I think that the work I do with Kate, my goal is always how can I become and stay and be a happier person, which I, all the work that we've done, it's it's like night and day for me. And what can you share about what the sessions look like? Um, well, there's always some kind of talk about where we are. Mm -hmm. And then we do some psychodrama, which is very helpful, where I get to put parts of myself that I'm unhappy with in a separate place, in a chair, and have a discussion. And a lot of peace comes from that. Mm. And a lot of understanding that these things that I thought I hated about myself were maybe protecting me or looking out for me. And a certain peace comes after these interactions that, you know, Kate moderates and guides me. So I'm, it, it's kind of life-changing. Yeah, I don't want to gloss over something that Debbie just mentioned. <laughs> this practice of putting something in a chair. Mm -hmm. Kate, mm -hmm. you gotta tell us more. How does it work? Okay, this is another topic I could spend days on. But give just, me the one minute version. Yeah, just as Jennifer said, we need to use different modalities. So it's it's uh, psychodrama and empty chair work is really talking with the individual. What do you wanna get out of today? But as a dietitian and as a psychotherapist, I use it to put the food in the chair and reverse roles with the food. Really? I use it to put, yeah, it's so powerful, as Debbie can attest. We'll put the eating disorder part in the chair. I can put the negative critic in the chair. I can put the scale that someone's obsessively using throughout the day. We can concretize it, put it in the chair, reverse roles with it, do a deeper type of work, experiential type of work, and really get to unpack these things. We can only get so far talking about things. And so I am a huge fan of experiential work because life is experiential yeah. and eating is experiential. Psychodrama. Psychodrama, like yes. that term. Yeah, I'm a certified psychodramatist. And so I fold this type of work into our sessions with clients and- yeah. Seems to be working. Yeah. So Debbie, where have you seen the biggest improvements throughout your journey? Because you started out at this place where you said, I cannot stand being frustrated about the way I look. And it wasn't even frustrated. It was like past that. It was like unhappy and yeah. really dictated how I felt about myself day after day. And now I just, um, uh, you know, my meals are not, my whole day isn't focused on my meals. My meals, I stop and I think, what do I want? What feels good? What I'm going to enjoy? And then... That takes a little bit of time before the meal, and when my meals are done, it's over. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not going to bed thinking, oh, my God, I had that for lunch or whatever. It's just a different kind of um, joy that I have in my life that I didn't allow myself because I was constantly thinking um, about myself and my food and mm. body image and things like that. And I have a lot more room now for joyous things in my Is life. Is there a sense of relief 
Debbie? Like, it's like I'm a different person. It's a huge relief. I, I have. To, I there has to I be. can be my. I can be myself. I learned to be myself. I learned what was stopping me from being myself. And Kate and I've been working in that. And it's just like I. I really, truly feel like a different person. We also have to be clear, Kate, that the the progress in recovery it, it's not linear. Mm-hmm. How do you help people from feeling discouraged, mm-hmm. especially if they have spent their whole lives restricting their food and, and working out to to look a certain way, but they don't feel like they're reaching that ideal version of themselves? Sure. What do you say to that person listening to us right now? Sure, it is a process. And we do, as many people have heard, we, we do need to trust the process. Um, and it can be very a very frustrating process. And I think that that is something that I lean upon as a clinician. I went through my own process of that and had so much frustration, the glacial pace that this can take for folks and really just validating and reminding them. Um, I also use a lot of metaphors in the work that I do. Um, and so things that are slow to change, slow to open up over time, those can really help um, usually get, help people drop into their heart and out of their thinking ahead of like, I should be here by now. I should, you know, I'm a, most of folks I work with are incredibly smart, high achieving, um, just really bright individuals. So mm-hmm. it's not a lack of knowledge here. A lot of times it's actually unlearning all of the dieting messages and the shoulds of I should look this way, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't eat that, mm-hmm. I should eat this, I should work out like this, I shouldn't do all of that. Um, even like Debbie's mentioning that to get freed up from that. Speaking of that messaging, I mean, do you think overall that perceptions about body image are changing in our culture? Very much so. And I'm, I'm very grateful for this, that to, to help us all just accept and build tolerance for diversity and that bodies are supposed to change. I was thinking on the way here, like if we are fortunate to live as long as we live, we've got to be open to allowing our bodies to change Mm -hmm. all through our lifespan and that that's okay. You know, I think also people come to me and this is change and that's change. And a lot of times my work is normalizing that for people. Yes. And that's okay. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're in your mid forties or mid fifties or mid sixties. Like these are normal common changes that are going to happen. And I like to just tune in to are people eating adequately? Where is self-care? Where's sleep and rest? Mm -hmm. Where's, um, pleasure with food? Well, Debbie, you've previously talked about seeing more representation of all body types in the media, albeit slowly, right? But there, there are some, some, some changes. How has seeing that impacted you? Oh, I, I think more women with curves absolutely. on the covers of magazines. I think it's, I think what Kate is helping me and helping a lot of people work towards like being okay, exactly how you are. And it doesn't, it shouldn't limit you body size or shape or anything shouldn't limit you from things you want to do where you want to be seen and to see people of all different sizes and shapes and colors in magazines and billboards. To me, it's like, we're on our way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to hear from you some words for the folks listening, Debbie, because it'll mean a lot coming from you. Someone listening might be struggling right now with disordered eating or their body image. I think that you have to start by being honest about how you really feel about yourself and being willing to consider 
giving up the way that you've been trying to make the changes in the past and find someone supportive who's got your back like Kate and who helps through every stage. And it's hardly about food. A lot of it's about shame. A lot of it's about emotional issues and processing and things like that. And you really, it's heart work, really. I mean, it mm. seems like it's really not too much about food. It's its about like learning who you are and what's going on inside. What's going inside and be wanting that to be joyous and happy for you. It's a good place to leave it. That's Debbie Haywood and Kate Merkel. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a reminder, if you or a loved one is struggling with an eating disorder, you can reach out to the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders hotline at 1-888-375-7767. This episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Micah Yason. It was edited by Dan Tucker and mixed by Brenda Ruiz. Thank you for listening. Now be sure to subscribe to the pod so that you never miss a conversation like this one. If you learned something today, well, consider leaving us a rating too. That helps us share local stories and national news to more listeners like you. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk again this afternoon. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.